I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business. A little later than usual, but with good reason. Coming up this week, regulation, regulation, regulation. We analyse the government's white paper on banking reform. Is it a financial fudge or blueprint for a new age of responsibility? Plus, BAB baby, if bonuses are back, what's the chance of doing to clamp down on excessive risk-taking in the city? And will the US and the EU get on board to ensure an international standard to our monetary systems? We hear from our man at the G8. This is The Business from The Guardian. We've had to relocate to the rather cosy surroundings of Studio 3 this week, and here with me in the pod is Dan Roberts, The Guardian's Head of Business. So much for the summer, Dan. No, it's all over. So get your cardies out. <laughs> and Jill Train is our banking expert. Busy day for you, Jill. Indeed it is. We'll get on to bonuses and all the goings on at G8 shortly. First, though, here's a word from the Chancellor. We need a change of culture in the banks and their boardrooms with pay practices that are focused on long-term stability and not on short-term profit. The FSA now has powers to penalise banks if their pay policies create unnecessary risk and are not focused on the long-term strength of their institutions. And from now on, I will require the FSA to report every year on how financial institutions are complying with their new code of practice for remuneration and how they will deal with firms that don't comply. Yes, the long-awaited white paper on banking regulation was published this week. The measures, first recommended by the head of the FSA, Adair Turner, include punishing banks that take unnecessary risks, forcing institutions to hold on to more capital, and something called macroprudential regulation, about which more in a moment. The bill has been introduced, of course, to try and prevent another financial crisis that's seen the taxpayer bail out likes of Northern Rock, RBS and Lloyd to the tune of billions of pounds. So, is this really the end of casino banking? Jill, what do you make of new regulations? How many of them actually really very new? That's the thing I'm asking myself. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here with this 179-page document in front of me trying to work out what difference any of this will make. You know, in a nutshell, it, it seems that what the government regards as its key change is the creation of a Council for Financial Stability, which Osborne has made a great... George Osborne, uh, the Shadow Chancellor, has had a great laugh in the Commons making fun of because essentially he's saying you're just replicating the current tripartite... So what is, what is the big new idea? Well, this Council for Financial Stability is going to replace what was a key tenant of the tripartite system. I'll remind you, the tripartite system was set up by New Labour in 1997. It's the FSA, the Bank, Bank of England, England and, and Treasury. Treasury. And it has become a sort of source of tension, one imagines, during the financial crisis as to who wants to do where. And yet this, this new big idea is the Bank of England, the Financial Service Authority and the Treasury again, but in a different room. Yes, and with a new name, Council for Financial Stability, or CFS, as they want us to call it. What can I say? We mustn't sound sceptical already, because, look, you know, it's we're, we're, what, an hour and a half into reading this document. But they're saying in this document that I have in front of me that one of the first key issues it's going to consider at its first meeting, date of which isn't in this document that I can see, is the question of remuneration. So, you know, we're starting to get ideas that this committee is going to look at at a wide range of things, it's also talking about the fact that it's going to have to do some sorts of annual reports to Parliament. It looks to be the body. When the Bank of England does its review of financial stability, there's always been a, a, a question about what does it do when it's saying we're worried about asset bubbles? And maybe this is the body now through which they'll start to do something about it. Dan, the Lib Dem, Vince Cable, who's the kind of the epigrammist of this, of this crisis, has said that this isn't so much white paper as a blank paper. Do you agree? 
Yes, I think George Osborne said it was a, a white flag, which I thought was actually slightly closer to the mark. I think actually we got a t- we got a lot of clarity today in, in amongst all the fudge. What we've got is an answer to the question, which has been a, the chance has been accused of for the last year, but we haven't quite known for sure which is that which is appeasement. And actually, I think what we had today was the ultimate statement of appeasement. Um, Throughout his speech to to the House, uh, he peppered it with references to how important the city was in terms of employment, how important it, it was to us in terms of uh, tax revenues. He didn't he didn't remind us of how much tax revenue has gone the other way, but um, uh, I presume he was talking about net tax revenue. Um, and the very first chapter of the of the, um, uh, of the of the white paper itself is entitled "The Importance of Financial Markets to the UK Economy." He could not have been clearer. He thinks the city is too important to to, to reform, and therefore has left it largely intact now there may be i think jill is right to be charitable we don't want to be too cynical about these things there may be a chance that this council that some other aspect of the 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 reform process yet to come will deliver these important reforms i'd be very surprised though because if he really was going to shake up city pay today was the day if he really was going to change the shape of banking because he believes some deep structural reform is necessary today was the day and he didn't what he gave us instead was a very clear message the city is too important we are not going to touch it jill um, the Treasury is in a bit of a bind because it does rely upon the city to provide so much tax revenues because Britain has been a financial economy, so financial services economy for, what, 300 years old, uh, going back to East India Company at least. Um, there's not very much you can do short of killing the golden goose, is there? Oh, God, what a question. I mean, you know, the fact is that the, 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 I'm going to change the question because yeah. the fact is the government's also got the other problem in, the, in, in that it's got... A 70% stake in Royal Bank of Scotland that's probably going to rise to 90% when they finally sign up to the asset protection scheme. It's got a 43% stake in Lloyds Banking Group and he wants to be able to sell those. So he doesn't want to change the backdrop too much. Otherwise, who on earth is going to buy shares in, in, in a banking industry that's already, that is facing a stranglehold from a government by overregulation? Um, yes, they need the tax, re- tax revenues. But the other thing to bear in mind is that RBS and Lloyds who were two of the biggest taxpayers in the city, in fact, at the moment, are enjoying what are known as tax credits because they are indeed running at a loss. So, uh, you know, there's a big problem all round. The banking sector needs to get profitable again, otherwise it's not going to be able to pay any tax um, in, into the exchequer. I think Jill's correctly summarised where the government's at on this. But but the two rejoiners, one is economic, one is actually, is it in the long-term interest of the economy to be so dependent on the city? We've just seen what can go wrong when it when it, when it really goes wrong. And actually, we're still reeling. The real economy is hardly a beneficiary, the rest of the economy is hardly a beneficiary of our commanding lead in financial services at the moment, quite the reverse. And I think the second question is political. I mean, I think it's a real own goal to, for a Labour Chancellor to be seen to be less radical and less reformist about the city of London than either of the two main opposition parties. I, I simply don't understand wh- wh- what Alice Darling thinks the politics of this are. Well, in, in the interest of balance, let, let's try and put uh, some kind of treasury view forward. One, we are a financial services economy, no getting away from it. Two, if we decide to cut back too much, bind our banks in too much red tape, then we're just giving away a, an immense competitive advantage that we have against the rest of the world. Britain is allied now with financial services. Why would we want to give away that? Well, that this is where I think we need a proper... I mean, my joke about net tax revenues uh, versus gross tax revenues, I think it's really important. We need a proper assessment, actually, of over the course of the cycle. Is the city this great asset we think it is? Actually, it's just almost bankrupted the entire nation and could still do, actually. I mean, we're not out of the woods on that one. So, you know, is it is it, is it taken for granted that a smaller city is a bad thing? I, I, the Chancellor's taken that for granted. I'm not sure the rest of the 
country with All three. right, point three. There's, there's always a risk that you're being far too short-term in your media appraisal. So in 2007, everything looked fine. So Gordon Brown gives a tremendously glowing speech to Managing House. 2009, well, the city's in a mess, so therefore we should cut back on city excesses. Isn't there always a risk that actually it, it, making policy in the heat of the moment leads to... Clearly what they're trying to avoid is their Sarbanes-Oxley moment. If you remember after the Enron and WorldCom crisis in the US, there was an enormous clamour for reform and, and, and the US business was swaddled in in what to, to everybody has agreed, including Paul Sarbanes and Mike Oxley, that it was over excessive red tape. They don't want that that backlash, uh, that overreaction in this case. Uh, but I think that actually we're not talking about um, tying the city up in red tape. I think what we because I agree, I, I actually think red tape doesn't even solve the issue either. I mean, a bigger FSA or, 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 or weightier sort of handbooks isn't the answer here. But what we are what we are presented with is an opportunity for some sort of structural reform, some sort of some sort of broader assessment of what is it that constitutes financial services and that I think is um, you know it has been shown to be lacking actually it has been shown that we that um, that a system that produces sort of you know 100 billion in profits every year for 10 years and then on the 11th year produces a trillion dollars in losses is not a terribly good thing. Jill, would people that you talked in in the banking industry would they be surprised relieved what will they the response be to this report? I think, I think on the whole, Vince Campbell made the point today in, in, in Parliament that on the whole, there will be a sense of relief. There are certainly some things in here that will, that will wind them up. For instance, the Treasury seems to have changed its stance on how the compensation scheme for people who lose their money in bankrupt banks, this thing called the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, should be funded. At the moment, the banks pay uh, a levy every year but when it's needed to pay out lots of money like it has this year, the, the, the government's lent it money and the banks are now paying it back. From 2012, there will be an upfront levy. The banks will not like this. They will regard this as a sort of, I'm imagining, I'm putting words in their mouth, but a mini tax on banks. Um, they will not be pleased about that. They will probably not be ecstatic about the fact that the government also wants to pay them, also wants them to pay a fee to set up a new kind of body to do financial education for consumers. That will irritate them as well. But I imagine that fee is not going to be anything like the size of the one we're going to see for the financial services compensation scheme. But on the whole, there's nothing in here, I don't think, that is going to say to Joe Bloggs, trader earning 30 million at some certain bank somewhere or other, that he's not going to get that bonus next year. He may get in in a slightly different form um, and his boss may have to justify it a bit more. But there's nothing in here that says paychecks can't be any bigger than X. We'll come back to bonuses in a moment. But just finally, question to both of you. Dan, you raised the politics of this. Why is it that we've got to a stage when a Labour Chancellor sounds more timid in tackling the city than his Tory shadow? Okay, to, 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 to take your cue of being, of, of being, trying to sort of look at it through their eyes, I think the government would say that's because we're in power and we have to be responsible and we can't just play for the gallery. Um, I would argue that actually it's a function of a government that's been in power too long and has actually lost its sense of strategic direction. It's fighting this crisis tactically, and tactically it's been bloody good. I mean, I think that the the, the response to the individual collapses of the banks has been been excellent. Um, But it it hasn't got a sense of strategy, and I think that that's what actually the luxury of opposition has afforded both Osborne and Cable. And, of course, the other point is that as the front part of this 
document that spread out in front of me talks about is that they're having to justify the system that they themselves created in 1997 and the tripartite system and of course to tear that up is a is a shocking acknowledgement that you made a mistake and remember that was Gordon Brown's baby not Alistair Darling's it was Gordon Brown's and but in here they're, they're trying to remind everyone that the Bank of England wasn't perfect that BCCI happened under its watch bearings happened under its watch that equitable life happened under the watch of the DTI so you know in this they spend a lot of time trying to justify their own existence again the reason why it's hard to tear up something that you created. People are furious about risk-taking and astronomical pay. People are asking how financial services appear to move so easily from being an asset to a liability to the economy. And people who are on short-time working or face the prospect of redundancy or their business failing, will be looking askance at reports of bonuses being paid out again. That's Business Secretary Lord Manderson, and he couldn't be much clearer. But bonuses are well and truly back in the city. Goldman Sachs, Barclays and even the state-owned RBS are at it. Just ask their new chief exec, Stephen Hester, whose new pay deal is worth close to 10 million quid. The bonus culture has been blamed for encouraging risk-taking and short-term thinking to the main reasons behind the financial crisis. Jill, do we see much of an attempt to tackle the bonus culture in this in this white paper? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think this will be one of the things that is going to be debated over the next 48, however many hours. But, you know, the fact is in here, from what I can see so far, and he definitely didn't say it in the House, as, as Dan has already mentioned, he, 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 there's no pledge to crack down on pay. What he's doing is he's putting the onus on the Financial Services Authority to use this new code that we already know it's creating to try and encourage banks not to have pay schemes that encourage traders to take lots and lots of risk to, to great, whacking great big bonuses that their next year turn out to have been based on inflated profits that weren't really there. Um, the one thing that is going to happen is that the FSA will now every year be required to say how banks are complying with its new code and say what it's going to do about that. I mean, you know, I suppose we have to wait and see what happens, but there's, it doesn't feel in here that there's anything that says the bonus culture has to end. And that's the crucial thing. Bonuses are allowed to survive under this government. Dan, the key words here are code, monitoring, uh, reporting back. So it's all about transparency and voluntary agreements. Is that sensible or do you wish it had gone further? Well, I, I do wish it had gone further. I, I would have liked to have seen a number of things, uh, practices banned outright. I mean, I think one of them is is uh, the the, um, the concept of guaranteed bonus, which I, I've always thought is something for not to over over a number of years. Yeah, I mean, a number of banks will basically recruit you and say, "We'll pay you your salary, and we also promise to pay you a bonus of this, that, and the other over the next few years." I think that you know it, it, it's uh, it flies against all the rules of good corporate governance, and yet it, it's we are seeing it, seeing it beginning to creep back into some of the banks already i would like to have seen that outlawed i'd like to have seen some um, um some mandatory um transparency i mean i think if we expect investors and regulators to to police boardrooms um we need to see how much the top employees paid maybe not by name i don't i don't want to get into a sort of a, a situation where you start sort of um bob diamond's um, worth this much or yeah but i think that you you know we should be able to say the top 100 employees in a com- in a company we should see a rough breakdown of what they're paid um some of the, some companies do that already voluntarily i think if we're expecting investors to sort of um to do their duty um and police this stuff they need to be given more information jill if they had if the government had done anything like the sort of measures that dan's talking about then bankers would simply turn back to politicians and said how can you be having go at us after your expenses scandal uh, they'd have probably done more than that they'd have said uh 
here's my toys, I'm throwing them out of my pram and I'm going to go and move to Geneva. You know, Stephen Hester, who runs Royal Bank of Scotland, is the one person running a bank where there has been an attempt to change the way bonuses are paid. You know, people there are being paid not in cash but in subordinated debt instruments and things that we, you know, we, we wouldn't ordinarily ever think about. But, you know, Hester himself, who has... Um, who, who has on the whole taken what the government have told him to do, has, has whinged about the fact that he can't pay bonuses, say he's losing some of his best staff. So, you know, the, the, you, how do you end a culture like this? I really do not know. I really do not know. Picking up on that, Dan, I mean, there have been reports in various papers over the past few days that if this 50p tax comes in, then all that will happen is bankers won't be taking income, they'll be taking capital payments instead. Well, there will always be ways of getting around the rules. And this is why I do think actually the one element of this that is important is the Walker report next week on corporate governance. I think ultimately there is a sort of um, uh, an ownership problem in banking, which is that the shareholders um, have allowed... It's a workers' cooperative. I mean, you know, it would it would warm the cockles of many socialist hearts. To the way the city operates, basically, is that the people who work in it uh, have become accustomed to creaming off almost all of the profits and taking none of the downside risk. Now, if you're an owner of that business, whether that's a pension fund or indeed the taxpayer now through 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 the government, that's not a that's not a healthy state of affairs. And I think the only really long term way of correcting this is to restore that balance in favour of the owners of the businesses away from the employees of the business. Um, I mean. In, in, in other industries, people would argue that's gone too far and employees end up getting screwed and the, the, the fat cats are the owners. But I think in the city, actually, the, 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 the scales are tipped far, far in the other direction. And that's, I think, more than regulation, that's ultimately the only way you're going to tackle this. I'd also add in parenthesis that I think the other issue is that profit margins for certain activities in the city are too high. I mean, this is meant to be the most competitive activity, uh, economic activity in the world. And actually, um, whereas other things like making cars or, 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 or making computers get cheaper and cheaper every year, the fees that, that bankers can, can cream off for the things they do go up and up every year. All the time that's in place. Of course, the people doing that work are going to command high wages. But another way of thinking at it is why is it that profit margins are so stubbornly high in what is supposed to be a competitive industry the leaders of the world's biggest economies are meeting in italy this week at the g8 conference issues such as climate change and aid to africa will be discussed but perhaps most crucially in light of the white paper we've been pouring over today it's a question over whether the eu and america will sign up to an international regulatory system that will ensure the british government's measures have some teeth the Guardian's economics editor is larry elliott and he's our man at g8 i spoke to him earlier Larry, when it comes to financial regulation, part of the government's argument has always been that, that a lot of regulation has to come from an international level, from either the EU or the G20. What kind of international appetite do you see for greater financial regulation? Depends where you, where you go and who you talk to, really. I think that there's quite a lot of appetite for it in uh, the finance ministers and central banks of continental Europe, I think, and in Brussels. I think there's much more of an appetite there for quite swinging curbs on hedge funds and private equity uh, and, and a sort of tougher approach towards uh, incentives for bankers than there is in uh, either in London uh, or in Washington. And I think that the, the response from either the Obama administration or from the Brown government is somewhat more measured, perhaps because financial services play a bigger part in those two economies, part, partly because of different, different culture. There is a real difference, I think, between the Anglo-Saxon approach to, to regulation and, and that which is predominated in, in Europe over, over issues that have tended to be much more 
hands-on and, and, and tended to, towards a more dirigiste model. So I think the, the, the approach towards financial regulation or re-regulation really fits the pattern of, of what we know about their overall approach to the economy, which is that the continental European model is much more hands-on and the, the Anglo-Saxon model is, is more light touch. And when it comes to the G8 summit, of which you're, you're our main representative, um, this is quite a funny one, isn't it? Because G8 summits are either about photo opportunities or they're about serious policy issues. And this one just seems to be a bit of a mess, isn't it? What are they saying about the outlook for the world economy? Well, they're quite worried about it, actually. I mean, I, I think that a couple of months ago, they would have said or would have hoped that they would have been in a position to say now, look, you know, we took all these actions late last year. We've recapitalized the banks. We've bailed out the financial system. We've cut interest rates. We've allowed budget deficits to rise. And, and that has actually led to um, a rapid recovery and a real bounce back. I think in, and that was looked as though it might well be the message up until about three or four weeks ago. But most of the, most of the economic news over the last, last month has not been quite so encouraging and I think that coming into this there was a sort of sense that there was no real room for complacency there was a real risk of a double dip recession here that most of the most of the recovery was really based around companies building up their stocks again after after a massive amount of de-stocking and that there was there was a, there was a real danger of of, um, of a relapse and uh, I think it's quite interesting that it looks like the G8 who are now I think quite concerned that the second half of 2009 could be a quite tricky period. You know, we've, you know, we've yet to see the full impact of rising unemployment on the consumer demand. Um, house prices are still weak in America. Banks are still very reluctant to lend. Um, and all those factors you know, suggest that this recovery has not really put down any, any roots yet. And so there's, there is a there is a feeling that things could turn quite nasty um, over the coming months. Larry Elliott there from the hubbub of a busy G8 summit. OK, that's enough regulatory talk for one week. My thanks to Jill Trainer, Dan Roberts and Larry Elliott. If you want to give your feedback, feel free to vent some spleen or be a bit more polite on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer's Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty and that was the business. <laughs> <laughs>